Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Nacho Bassino. Nacho is a veteran product leader and the author of Product Direction, which is one of my go-to books on how to actually generate a product strategy. Now, there are many excellent books out there on strategy as a whole, but surprisingly few that specifically cover product strategy. And so Nacho's work fills a real gap in this critical area of product leadership. Now, two of the hardest things about strategy are that, one, everyone thinks it means something different. And number two, it depends. Everything kind of depends on the context and strategy. So in this conversation, we really sought to go deep on product strategy and make it concrete and actionable, taking on questions like, how much time and effort does it actually take to build a product strategy and then evolve it over time and keep it alive? When should we be prescriptive in strategy and how prescriptive should we be? Which part of this whole thing am I as a product leader actually accountable for? And much more, including how to adapt to different industries as a product leader and how to adjust for different cultural contexts within your team in this new world that is predominantly remote and distributed, including both within one culture but across cultures. So with all that, please enjoy this strategy deep dive with Nacho Bassino. Welcome to the show, Nacho. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm such a fan of of, uh, of you and your work, and we've been getting to know each other over these last few months. And I'm looking forward to all the all the ground we're going to cover in this conversation. So, for the listener, you're in for a good one, especially on all things strategy. Nacho is is my main man on strategy, so it's going to be fun. Um, but Nacho, just just in terms of like the listener getting to know you a little bit better, you know, I know you're doing a lot of this strategy focused work now. But tell us a little bit about like how did, how did you get here? Yeah, that's a, that's a two decades story almost. So give me the, give me the <laughs> one minute version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically I started as a software engineer. Eventually this is kind of many years ago, as I just said. So eventually I realized that I was spending my time on things that someone was deciding I needed to build. And I started asking, okay, why are we building this? I was not satisfied with the question. At the same time, this role of product owner was coming to life through the kind of Agile manifesto and all the product, uh, so Agile guide and things like that. So I gave it a try and I, I convinced my boss in my company that I should convert into this uh, uh, product owner at the time in our Scrum team. Uh, and I was successful, but of course that was kind of inside the software factory model. So it was not very real mm. product ownership, but I had it, that gave me a chance to jump to, to another company in which I, there were real product managers who really coached me how to, how to at least be a bit more real about product management. Uh, which kept me growing, and I, I jumped to kind of different companies, different industries. I spent a great deal of time in the travel industry, almost eight years, and kind of climbing the ladder of product leadership in in there until it was in my experience in in Mexico. I was a chief product and technology officer of the company called Best Day, which is kind of the largest travel company in Mexico. Very transformative experience for me. Uh, but then I decided to move to Europe, and I joined kind of my my last company as a product leader here in, in Barcelona, where I'm currently living, um, before jumping finally to full-time product consulting and coaching, which is what I'm doing now. No, I love that. Thank you for the, for the quick context there. So one of the things that I love asking someone with your kind of background about is how they find, how they've experienced product differently in different contexts, right? So I feel like a lot of people, we approach 
at least those of us who spend all of our time thinking about product, we approach it as if it's sort of the same thing everywhere, right? Like we know what product is and let's do it. But you've obviously seen that that's not the case. Like you've worked in different industries, you've worked in different countries and and all kinds of contexts. So I'm curious, how have you found this discipline that, you know, I'm doing air quotes here of product? How have you seen it to be uh, different when you move, for example, from the Americas to Europe and sort of working there or in these different industries? Yeah, that's uh, super, super interesting. I, I feel that the first problem we have to deal with is that product is different from company to company. Not, not, it doesn't matter if it's across the streets. It's just kind of right, different. Right. So that, that's one problem. Um, I would say that I, I felt some particular culture differences from when moving through countries that are interesting, but are not necessarily internal to product, are more about the working culture of those countries. Just to give you two examples, when I was moving from Argentina to Mexico, the um, the big deal is that Mexican culture is much more hierarchical. So, you know, mm-hmm. in product, we need to brainstorm and we need to be upfront about the results. I think that, mm-hmm. And people were not, it was not their natural way of thinking. Um, what's interesting anyways is that not all people of a country are the same. So mm-hmm. you can actually find people, uh, even when the, the, the kind of the, the normal work ethics or protocols are one way, you can easily find people who had a more, let's say, product mindset in, in their, in their bones. Mm. Um, so that was kind of one interesting uh, difference. And also when moving from, from Americas to Europe, I think that the, for example, the, the, the rhythm of working and how fast you're expected to move is, is quite different. So I was working for a German company it was much more structured, much more planning and, and yeah, things were, I would say slower because it was probably not the, the right way to say, but changing the direction, for example, well, felt a bit more, um, difficult or require more, much more conversations than in, for example, Mexico. That's really interesting. So I, I, I have two questions about that that I'd love you to take in whatever way feels right for you. But I guess my first question is, how have you found it? Like what has helped you to adjust to those different contexts? Because I imagine it's not that easy necessarily to just unplug from one context and change your whole way of working when you switch countries or continents or companies. So how have you like adjusted to that? Yeah, that's a very good question because the real first problem is that you realize that's the problem. Because say my, my, following my example from Argentina to Mexico, I'm kind of being in Argentina and with central working protocols much more closer to the US, uh, you expect people to be upfront of what's going on. So when someone came from a different culture and tell you, hey, things are this way, you assume that's the truth. But in Mexico, you need to dig a bit deeper. I mean, again, mm. I'm generalizing here. Sorry for if many Mexicans hearing. It's not kind of everywhere the same. But that's the, the thing that I, I realized that I first of all need to be aware of the difference. And many leaders crossing borders may not be that way. Uh, so one thing that a resource that helped me a lot in this uh, context was a book called The Culture Map, which is fantastic. Yeah, I was just going to ask if you would, if you would uh, use that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I did use it. Uh, and also, I also had peers who were in the company for, coming from different companies. There was a lot of people from Spain, from Argentina, and from different countries. Um, so they, they helped in kind of raising this awareness quick. So I suggest if you are kind of uh, coming from, from yeah, as an external to these companies, just getting to know the, the culture of the company 
from perspective of people that are from different cultures will help you understand what the difference on how you typically think. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and the culture map is such a great resource. It absolutely saved my sanity a few years ago when I was working, like building this big international team and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was almost like somebody gave me this like, you know, decoder ring for international culture in a working <laughs> team. I was like, oh, thank you. Um, so Let's flip it though. So, you know, in your role as a product leader though, how, you know, especially now that teams are getting more distributed, that's much more normal now than it used to be. So I feel like more and more every product leader needs to build a competency around essentially cross-cultural collaboration. So how do you see that this, this lens of like cross-cultural norms, how does that change things when you're leading a team, building a team or an organization? Yeah. So... One of the topics I'm also passionate about besides strategy is uh, this this topic about, um, say, let's call it product-led excellence or product-led culture. So that's something I'm actually currently working on that. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially why I'm calling this out is because this is the design you want to have for your product organization. So beyond kind of uh, particular ways of communicating that may feel more natural to one uh, culture than another, you want to build your own way of thinking, behaving, and collaborating in your product organization. And that needs to be cross-borders. And maybe reflecting back to what I was saying before, we don't need to generalize. It's not that our Mexicans are the same, or Argentinians are the same, or Germans are the same. It's th that's not the case. So probably there will be people that will naturally fit into your organization better than others, and that you need to kind of have that lens, especially when hiring. That's my, the, the way I'm, I'm thinking about. And the other thing that you need to kind of be flexible about is, okay, if I'm having in mind this particular uh, practice, ceremony, or way of communicating, how does it feel to others? And this is true for any leadership role, not only product leadership, but you as a leader are the one who needs to adapt to how your your the people working in your team better, for example, communicate. So I, I have one typical example that happens to me yes, please. is that I think to myself. So I, I think internally and then talk. But there are people who are much better kind of being in this session, talking out loud their thoughts. Uh, and this is something, again, as a leader, you need to adapt to their context and help them do it. And, and you can actually request this from your boss if you've <laughs> got that luxury. But even what I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, you are the one who needs to make them, I won't say feel comfortable, but maybe the, the more proper term is perform well. That's your job. Make them, mm -hmm. Give them the environment to perform well. So having this ability is super important and say that's Cross-culture is more personal, one-on-one -on -one related. Mm, yeah, no, I really appreciate that. This is an interesting place to pivot into strategy because in the same way that working norms and cultures are different in different places, it feels a little bit to me like everybody has a different definition of strategy. And so I guess maybe an interesting place to start opening up the strategy conversation is from your perspective, what is strategy? So maybe going back to what you just said, I wouldn't say that the strategy is a particular kind of uh, framework, which also means in some way it's not a particular definition, but I will tell you what I believe should be in a strategy. It would be a coherent set of problems we need to solve, usually in some particular order, with a good explanation of why they are the harder problems to solve to get to the product vision we are trying to get. So essentially, if you think about what questions fundamentally strategy needs to answer it needs to be okay what are the problems we need to solve in what order to get closer to our vision which of course had a lot of underlying things like for example 
are we, when you answer the why question, hopefully it's because you are uh, the best one position to solve this problem in this particular way. Or for example, when we think about, uh, is this getting closer to our vision? Okay, does this strategy serve the underlying needs of my customer? So there are a lot of underlying questions, but fundamentally those are the two that are the, the big blocks. No, I love that. Thank you for, the, for that and laying that foundation. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, I have I've had, I don't know, maybe 10 conversations just in the last two weeks with different product leaders where you can see that everybody has some sense of strategy, but there's maybe lacking a coherent or certainly shared definition like you just offered there. One of the things that I've been looking for, and I'm curious if you have a take on this is, so if I'm a leader listening to this, right, I think we have a strategy, right? Everybody thinks they have a strategy. What would be a good sort of self-check like like what are a couple questions i could ask myself or kind of as i look around my team to know like you know however we got there how do how do we know how do i as a leader know if we actually have a strategy how do i know if i'm you know doing it right nacho that's my real question how am i know how do i know if i'm doing this right so that's a very difficult question probably it needs to to have so i want to use the typical independence card so that i, I will try to to stay away from that okay we made it but eight minutes without an independence card that's pretty good for product exactly <laughs> all right check, check. <laughs> all right so now that we've established that it all depends back to you <laughs> yeah so uh, maybe reflecting back on what i was just saying the the real questions are are Kind of those two. I mean, you, you need to make sure that, that that's the case. But one thing that I usually am I'm very, and probably this is my, my hot take. It's different from others. Beautiful. I'm actually looking for an artifact. I'm, I'm looking at, have you written down somehow your strategy? If you don't have that, probably you don't have a strategy. Why? Because even if you have clear thoughts in your head, it's very, very hard. If there is no artifact that people will get the same strategy that you are thinking on their heads. So unless you're a very tiny startup or a very uh, good communicator in some magical way that I haven't seen in, in, anywhere, uh, it's very hard that that's the, that's the case. So real artifact, one point. The artifact, I'm super flexible, can be the written narrative, can be a PowerPoint presentation, can be, I always love the, the one chart showing kind of the, the big blocks and why, um, but that's the, the what I'm looking for. And then going back to checking, okay, this strategy good. I think that there are kind of the, 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 the two questions just asked is, do you have real problems to solve? Do you explain why in a way that positions you to be the, the winner or you can be the winner by solving these problems because you have unique uh, strengths that help you get there? And third, is this getting closer to your vision of the future? Yeah, I, I really like that. One of the things that I've noticed, I'm curious if, if you've seen this as well. So I've met several companies in the recent past, let's call it this year, that were very sure they had a strategy. But when you looked at it from the outside, you know, with no, if you're looking at it fresh, it really wasn't customer centric. And it was really sort of almost like the business projecting its own desires onto the world. For example, it's like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to become a subscription based business model instead of transactional. That doesn't say anything about your customer like that. Your customer might not want that. That might be bad for them. And, and, you know, that's just one example. There could be many, many of these. So I guess my question here is what are some of the common pitfalls you see and how can a leader kind of catch it before they go too far down the road with, with something that's not going to work? Yeah. So the, the, the one you just mentioned is kind of one of them. So being, um, it's not even that you're not customer centric. It's just kind of you're stating um, a business uh, decision or a business desire for the future. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I think that from from product leadership perspective, 
it's um, normal to expect that some, especially some CEOs that might be more sales-driven or maybe may, may there for other reasons, don't have this product thinking that makes them do this jump to, okay, what that means for the product. So that's where your job comes in and you need to really kind of put that in place. So that that's, I mean, okay, we want to make change for subscription model. Is this going to be good for the customers? How is it going to be good? What value are we adding? What unmet needs? Why are we the ones who can build this thing? And then if you find that that's not right, as you were saying, hey, this is not good for the customers, it's your job to go back to the CEO and say, hey, sorry, this strategy we don't believe will, will fit with uh, the product we need to build. And of course, don't go with a problem, go with another proposal and a, and a good strategy might, might be. The, the second common pitfall is um, granularity. So I, I see all these kind of, yes, with this, our strategy is to expand into this country. So this is probably too high level. And going back, if you reflect on the questions we just said, it doesn't tell you what problems you need to address, why this country, and why you are the one who can win the market in this country. So I guess that easily reflecting back on the questions can give you this sense of, okay, this is the common pitfall, but I will describe it as granularity being a very common one. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm recalling right now a conversation you and I had probably like a month ago where we were, you were helping me think through one of these for, for a situation I was working on. And, uh, you know, the, the three questions we kind of landed on as like checkpoints were, what are the customer problems we need to solve? And, and some of those were translated from the business things. Like, oh, you want, you know, you want a recurring business model? Okay, great. Like what customer problem are you going to solve that will enable you to solve your business problem? So that was thing one. Thing two was why, <laughs> why those and not the others. Uh, and that included like in what order. And number three was how do we know if we're doing it? Right. Like what are the outcome measures? Yes. Were those the three? Uh, remind me here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. And I, I did mention in my previous uh, questions of what good strategy is, I did mention objectives I should have. So that's another another good one. But it's not about the strategy. It's about you being able to execute on the strategy. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very important one. And what I will add to that is that on the, on the why question is not only kind of, yes, we select what problems we want to solve, but also explain why us. So it's not only why this problem, it's also why us are the best position to solve this problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I've noticed related to this is that very often I find that some of the product leaders I'm working with, when we first get going and we're just opening up the strategy topic, they, they very it's very common, I find, to confuse um, aspiration with strategy. No, no, I was saying it reflects back to the granularity thing. So when you are too high level, usually it's because you haven't thought through the problems. Hey, we want to expand there, but why and how? And it's kind of uh, missing in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm reminded of um, what's the book? Is, is the book? I think it's where to play or playing to win. That's the book, right? Where it's yeah, like kind of the heart of it is is where to play and how to how to win, right? Like where where, yeah. where are you doing this thing and how are you going to win there? Um, so let's zoom in here a little bit more. So you know, you mentioned just a second ago that what you really look for that's your hot take is an artifact, right? That there's something condensed. This has been somehow distilled into something that can be transmitted easily to other people. But I guess my question is here from your perspective, what does the cadence look like? Like how, first off, how long does this take? Cause I think a lot of people think this takes a really long time. Is that true? It depends. No, no, be, be, make, making it real. I think that there is a huge context to be considered in terms of the, the size of the organization. If you're a public organization, the impact on the budget, there are tons of things to consider there. Um, so I, I will split this in two. So 
if you are on the kind of bigger, larger side of organization, you are probably tying this to some sort of annual planning, which is involving budget. It usually takes two or three months. You usually have a lot of painful uh, phases of that process. That is not necessarily the strategy itself, but the strategy is part of that. So it's, it, it can feel painful because it's kind of related to all this, this mess. So that's, and that's typical. And, and, and I, I would say it's even okay. Um, the other thing that I'm doing now currently, for example, when jumping to organizations that are having this problem saying, Hey, we know the strategy is doing the, the usual backward exercise, uh, or even if they don't have a strategy. So if you don't have a strategy, you are at least executing something. So let's fake it and let's make this your three months of strategy, kind of putting into paper what you are currently doing. And you will start kind of finding, okay, what's your reasoning for doing the things you are doing? You find a weak spot. Okay. What, what? Okay, what did we bet on that we didn't have an idea about and we need to kind of go and figure it a bit more and explore the problem space? So you can do it. And what I'm trying to say is that you can do it in a very short period of time, just putting into paper what you are already doing. If you have two months, it's two months. If you have six, it's six. So maybe based on your roadmap or whatever you have there. Um, and, and then from there, you can start building the muscle of making this strategy more robust. So that's another way to say, hey, we win value of putting a strategy out there immediately. And then what we are doing is constantly evolving the strategy and making it better. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found to be I don't know if it's people think about this explicitly, but I, it seems to be in the background for many folks is that strategy is this sort of, we, we, we have to put so much time and effort into it because like, oh, we're stuck with it, you know, for a year or two years, it, rather than treating it as like a living document, a living thing that it's going to be continually updated. So talk to me a little bit about that. So if we, if we suddenly take the pressure off, right, if we, if we say, if we change it that, Hey, like this is not a forever decision, right? This is our best guess right now based on everything we, we can understand for the next, whatever, six months, 12 months. How does, what is it, what does that ongoing process of evolving a strategy look like when it's done well? What, sh- what should that look like? Yeah, to, to me, the most uh, critical uh, part is what usually is in, in all companies, some sort of uh, quarterly review. So in one, in one form or another, the least form that is usually most, say, Modernly run companies or, or not so, but at least they are faking it is the OKRs. So they have some sort of OKRs. OKRs, well, hopefully they are tied to your strategy. So they will help you know if the high level objectives that your strategy have are moving forward or not. And what we learn from that can be reflecting on the strategy. So one very typical example, going back to the granularity pitfall I was mentioning before, it might not be, even be a pitfall, but you selected one metric that will be kind of a, hey, the North Star metric for this strategic pillar. But then along the way, you start refining the execution and you start kind of uh, doing things a bit more concrete and you start gathering all metrics that may be part of a KPI tree evolving from that. And you decide that the, the metric needs to change in the strategy. And that's totally fine. I mean, it's not that, that, that you are, um, everything was wrong. It's just kind of you are understanding more about the context, which helps you make put something in the strategy that reflects better what you are trying to achieve. So that's a very good outcome of evolving the strategy. Same is true for discovery practices or when, for example, we're mentioning about the why, maybe the, the initial why is a high level, hey, this market is super big and has all these opportunities. And then when you start narrowing down, you say, hey, this market was this big, but this is the, the real opportunity we have because the other ones, uh, we will not be able to serve those customers. So again, this is about evolving your understanding and should be reflected in whatever strategy artifact you still have. Right. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like the 
if we give ourselves permission to learn and update the strategy, right? Like the strategy should be different in whatever, three months, six months, because we will hopefully have learned a bunch in three or six months that we will have learned some of the areas that what we were doing wasn't going to work and we can make it better. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And, and I like the way you put it because first of all, we have permission to learn. So if we, if we are not learning, we are, we are not doing any, any meaningful product work. Uh, so when, when you learn, you want to update the strategy. And maybe I just phrase it in, in ways of refining the strategy. Mm. But if you, let's say that let's go to the extreme example. If you find out that some strategic hypothesis was completely wrong, mm. it's, you must mm. change that strategy. Mm-hmm. So that's the, what you're doing it for. I mean, that's, you're executing in a lean way to learn more things in order to polish your strategy or change it soon if you find, if you find out that the, the path was not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So there, I think it's a useful distinction you're making there between, you know, the, the sort of ongoing evolution and updating of the strategy versus like a revolution of the strategy where we say, no, this thing's wrong and we need a new one. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, let me just yeah. ask you this because I can hear some of the product leaders I work with just in the back of my mind right now. They're going, okay, so let's assume that I, Everybody thinks they have a strategy, whether that's true or not is different, but let's assume they're doing their first real cut at a strategy, like the first big lift where they're like, okay, no, I, I buy in, I, I, you sold me Nacho, I'm, let's do this. How long does it take and how many people does it take? Like, is it, is it the, just the head of product? Is it their whole product team? You know, if I was a, if I was a VP of product and I said, all right, I'm in, what's this going to take to do first, the first big lift and then the ongoing updates? Like, how would you answer each of those? Again, it all depends, but just take the general case. No, the, 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 the real question there is how much knowledge do you have about your opportunity space? So if you need to go to figure out your opportunity space, that will take a lot of time. And this is, can, I mean, it sounds stupid, but if you're a leader coming to an organization, which, for example, is not used to having a solid product strategy or even some solid discovery practice, can be the case that you don't have a lot of opportunity space mapped out. And this can take a lot of time. I would say, I will excuse myself saying this is not strategic work, but yeah, at the end of the day, you need to, to do that exercise of mapping the space. But let's assume that the, the, the positive scenario in which you have some opportunities. Really quick, by the way, if somebody doesn't have that, do you reckon, I mean, that sounds like just fundamental product discovery work. Would you just recommend they do like an opportunity solution tree? Or if somebody does find themselves, let's say they jump into a new company they don't know the context they were hired because the company thinks they can you know basically help the company figure it out but they don't know and they got to do this how would you suggest they do that yeah absolutely so the, the, the mapping the opportunity space use whatever tool you you, you like opportunity trees are very good so yes that's exactly what i'm, I'm talking about and maybe it's just to complement that doesn't mean that you need to know all the branches of the trees with perfect accuracy. It's just kind of putting out what the usually, I mean, if, if, if you're a new leader, what the organization already knows. So there probably is a bunch of people that you can interact with to, to put this together, say quickly, don't want to say quickly, but you know what I mean? It's kind of in, in a couple of weeks, probably you can have a lot of uh, ground covered. That makes sense. Okay, great. So, so now let's assume we've got the fundamental sort of opportunity space, at least roughly mapped out. Then what? Yeah. So then it's a matter of se- selecting the right opportunities, which usually takes refining the assessment you have of those opportunities and having conversations with the relevant stakeholders and the relevant p- people from your team. So this can usually take the form of this typical kind of if you want to call it retreats, but you know, long-term mm-hmm. workshop mm-hmm. Um, in which you, you kind of spend a good deal of time reviewing these opportunities and discussing which ones are the most relevant and why. Um, 
or you can do it in more asynchronous way, which will take longer for sure. Uh, but we are talking about a couple of weeks here. It's not kind of super, super hard. I mean, depends again on the size of the organization and how many stakeholders you need to talk with and whatnot. But assuming you're a VP of a kind of normal size, mid size organization, that would probably take a couple of weeks. Um, and once you select the, the, the real work is about refining. So you will need to, for example, agree on targets that usually I recommend doing that after agreeing on opportunities because it requires a bit more of a deep down and, and, and digging data and whatnot. Um, so that I can, can take one or two weeks. And then the final phase is, okay, let's put that together and, and have a, some communication around it. That's, again, something that you can do pretty easily if you had done the, the previous steps. The first big step is kind of mapping out the opportunity space. If you don't have that, that can take months or more. And, but then the, the rest of the phases can take probably in the number of weeks. So it sounds like Assuming you, you have the opportunity space already decently mapped, we're talking a co- probably a couple weeks for the opportunity sort of ranking and selection and focusing, and then potentially a few more weeks, like one or two more weeks for digging into the data to figure out like the target setting. And then there's maybe a few more weeks of the basically all the work to communicate this very effectively. So altogether, that sounds like something like on the order of about two months, maybe. For your first yeah, big lift? Yeah, and it can, can be shorter. Again, going back to the, the size of organization, it can be shorter. I have seen that in, in a month easily. So, also, by the way, that depends on the, the size of organization and how much time you are uh, putting into it. Because I've seen a lot of leaders complaining about how much work does it take but or how, how long does it take. And then you go review their agendas and they're spending one hour per week in strategy. Well, sorry, dude, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's impossible. That's just not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so so that's that, that makes a lot of sense for, for just for putting, you know, like a rough parameter on it. Cause I think one of the reasons people like, let's imagine a VP who doesn't really have a strategy and they're only putting an hour a week into it. I think in my, my, my hypothesis is that a lot of people don't buckle down and really do the work because they don't actually know what it takes. And so they think they're signing up for this, like, Oh, it's going to take me a year. It's like, no, this could be a month if you do it right. So I think it's good just to kind of make that a little bit more concrete. So I appreciate that. So once they've got one, and now we're into the like, okay, we have a strategy. Now we actually have a strategy. We're working on it. We're learning. We're updating. We're refining. So then walk me through. Let's assume it is now we're about to go into Q3 of the year, right? As we're recording this, it's about to, about to go into Q3. So let's assume that I have had a strategy for all of Q2 and I did this big, you know, big lift back in January and February. And now I'm finishing my first quarter with an actual product strategy. So what should I be doing right now as a leader to update my strategy, communicate it? Like how much work, how much time is this going to take to keep this thing alive and, and make it even better? Yeah. So that three big things that I like to see reviewed in a, in a quarterly basis or in this quarterly strategy review or how you want to call it. The first one will be quite obvious. It's OKRs. So we have some OKRs, as I was saying before, if, if you did it correctly, you derive some kind of high level objectives. I was okay, if these are my high level yearly objectives or something like that, you will see something more narrowed down for the quarter, kind of that uh, will give you some, some feedback on, on how on point your execution was. The second thing is usually I, I like to work with strategic roadmaps that, uh, again, not all organizations have them, but can be a high level artifact that tells you you know, the strategy will mention, okay, these are the, the big problems we need to solve. The roadmap express that in maybe in a more granular way or more divided way, still keeping them as uh, outcomes you want to achieve or problems you want to solve. So this is a very helpful tool to say, okay, did we solve these problems or did we not? Based on, on how well we solve it or what we learn along the way, do we need to change our roadmaps? 
And that's where the third element comes into play, which is the opportunity solution tree. So again, opportunity solution tree, we may imagine is not one big uplift. Hopefully it's a living document that you are constantly evolving because you are learning more from the customers. And this, yeah, this is the big, this should be true. If you are not doing this, you can, you are not doing kind of very, very solid product management. So the opportunity solution trees, what will happen is two things. The first one is that you will have, um, updated opportunities saying, hey, this is more valuable or less valuable than what we believe. Or you have add new opportunities, say, hey, this is something new we discover with customers. So this is where the, 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 the going back to the strategy and saying, okay, these were our pillars where our first, the our pillars still hold true. Do we learn something new that needs to update it? Or if they are still true, Maybe we need to go down to the other artifacts or the roadmap and OKRs to say, okay, we have this learning now that this opportunity needs to come into place. And then we shift the, the, the things. Because at the end of the day, I usually mention this, but I call these three artifacts part of direction. So strategy, roadmap and OKRs. So what, what you are updating at the day is the direction. Mm. So direction mm-hmm. may need a change in strategy. Hopefully not, but for sure in the other two. We will have no, that's great. So, so yeah, we have these three three components that also are kind of the process you have to go through, right? First, you have to create a strategy. Then you have to convert it into a high level plan, which is the roadmap, which is really, you know, I think we're both a fan of the book Product Roadmaps Relaunched. And I love the way they talk about a roadmap in there is like, it's not a delivery plan. It's a, it's a communications artifact that communicates intent, exactly. like strategic intent, exactly. uh, which for me was the exactly. big takeaway of that book. And then we have to turn that into some OKRs and then the underlying opportunity solution tree. Do you, do you find, by the way, the when you're mapping at that, like there's there's the opportunity solution tree very much down at like the tactical level at the, the product discovery and delivery level with the team itself, with the product team. Do you also use it at a higher level, at a more strategic level, or do you kind of reserve that for a lower level uh, artifact? That's a good question. Um, I have used it at strategic level, but um, not building different trees. So what I'm trying to say is that usually the teams, and I have seen this play out in many different ways, so I will call it the, the way I, I like it the most is when teams usually have many levels in the opportunity breakdown. So it's start with the set outcome, but then you say, hey, this is a big chunk of opportunities. Then these are small opportunities related to this one. And this is even smaller opportunities related to this one. So it's kind of this this hierarchy. And I'm making a lot of hands movement. Sorry, sorry, it was listening. Uh, but essentially, uh, you are having this big hierarchy. And when you are doing a strategy work and you are kind of rolling up to, to higher levels, you are looking at the top part saying, okay, where are the big chunks that we can work on? And actually this is where the, the input from, from the product teams is more helpful for leaders is because they probably have this, since they explore the lower levels of the, of the, of the tree, they can give you more precise information about the higher levels of these opportunities. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. One of the, so, I mean, I think a lot of that process turns on outcome setting. Right. And the, the choice of the outcomes that we we make. And this seems like a place where we need to zoom back out to the relationship between the product leader and the rest of the leadership of the company. So talk to me a little bit more about that, especially if we have the all too common case where we have, um, let's say, a CEO, just to make this totally stereotypical. Let's say we have a, a, a CEO who's very sales led and is really driving, you know, revenue, revenue, revenue. That's the, that's the classic one you hear all the time. Um that's probably, you know, that's probably not going to translate into a strategy so well. So talk to me a little bit about how we convert the, the, the metrics and the, the outcomes that we are seeking when from, from sort of the business level down to what we actually need with the product teams. How do you approach that? Yeah. So 
by the way, just to, to mention it uh, loud and clear, that's fine. I mean, that's the role. That, that's why they hire VPs of products. So it's, uh, it's kind of the job. You shouldn't be expecting your your CEO to be the, the product guy. If not, you're in trouble. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is kind of your job. Exactly. Um, so um, the way I like it is the way that just Saiden, for example, explains this uh, connection. I think the chef Fatan also mentioned it is the connection between impact, which is what the revenues, what the company expects, then the outcomes, which is, okay, what customer's behavior I need to change in order to drive those those impacts, and then, of course, the initiatives and the work we do. So mm. the, 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 work, the, the way I expect product leaders to take this problem is exactly that, thinking, okay, hey, we are, the, the, the way we operate or the things we change in our product change customer behavior in a way that generates more revenue in this case. Um, and one, just to, to mention one, one tool I like to use about that is kind of any sort of product modeling in which you're saying, Hey, this is the, how the customers are behaving in the, in the, in the product and which levers I can trigger. The typical example is if you're thinking about an e-commerce, this is a funnel. But if you're thinking about the um, software as a service, it can be more about the, the actions you are doing and how successful they are doing in the, in the things they are going to your product to do. So all these kind of uh, flows that will explain the behavior of, of your users. Yeah, I, I like that. And I, I want to say yes and and build on that. One of the things that I found to be really helpful about this sort of you know, we're, we're speaking a lot in the language of trees here and sort of hierarchical way of thinking. One of the things that I find helpful about that is we can prioritize at, at each level relative to that level. So we can say, okay, at a, at an impact metric level, at the business level, like what's the most important? Is it revenue? And if, I mean, it's always, it's almost always revenue, but okay, fine. Then revenue is a lagging indicator basically of everything. So inside that, like what's, what are the big levers in there? Is it conversion rate? Is it churn? Is it, AOV is it whatever it is, right? And then we just keep breaking it down, and all along the way, we can prioritize within each level, and eventually we get to a place where we have something quite focused. One exercise—it's uh, funny you mentioned uh, Josh Seiden and Jeff Gothelf. Uh, there's an exercise, and we'll link to this in the show notes that I, I've done a lot. It's essentially like an impact mapping or a KPI tree, starting at the the impact metric level. I think I think the blog post is something like execs care about revenue. How do we get them to care about outcomes? Something like that. Well, I'll link to it in the show notes, but I'm curious if that's, if that's similar to what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And by the way, I use KPI trees all the time. Um, it's interesting because uh, you are doing exactly that. So for example, let's say I will take the e-commerce example because it's super simple. Say, hey, we want to hit revenue. So what we need to do is to have uh, either more users converting better, or having bigger, kind of bigger items in their carts, or yeah, more items. Traffic conversion rate AOV. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So what you can influence, let's say we want to influence the conversion rate. So what we can, how we can influence the conversion rate, and then you have the sub conversions through the steps. So there are kind of this logic that you can identify things that are more kind of business driven. For example, you probably do not affect the the, the marching or the price you are putting to the items in the in the e-commerce, but you for sure influence the, the the funnel and how users convert. So this helps separate for product teams, helps separate what they can actually influence to get to this uh, business level metric. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about just to make this very tactical and concrete. And then we're going to start to shift gears here a little bit. You know, I think I pulled this from your book, which by the way, if anyone's listening to this, you should absolutely go get Nacho's book. It's fantastic. It's one of my go, it's become one of my go-to strategy books. So, uh, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show, that was true before you came on the show, which is why I reached out to you. Uh, but the, I think this is from your book, but you, you gave an example of um, some, some objectives, I think in your book. And, and if I'm getting this wrong, please correct me. But it's this sort of idea of if we compared three ways of articulating an objective. One was 
automate the fulfillment of 99% of sales versus like reduce the cost per transaction um, versus reduce 20% of information calls by increasing available data in the purchase flow. And so I guess my, I have a two part question about that, which is a, what is, what do you want to highlight about the difference between those articulations? Let's just start there. Like what, what's different? What do you, what's important about those different versions? Yeah, no, the, 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 it, it goes back to, again, to the, to the tree logic and then the KPIs, what we're trying to say, Hey, if we want to kind of, uh, reduce cost, which is the, the high level objective, these are the three paths we can take. And when, when we're thinking about the strategy, going back to the typical, Hey, if you want to make some, be, be focused about what you're doing, probably those are kind of big, big three different routes you can take and you need to assess which is the, the most interesting one to achieve this cost reduction that is the, the, the impact that you're trying to achieve. One of the questions I w- wanted to get your take on is, you know, I, I'm coming at this conversation. My current thinking is that, you know, we've talked a lot in our industry and in our discipline about the need for empowered teams. And if we really boil down, like, what does that mean? And that's something that I've gone deep on elsewhere and have given talks on. You know, for me, it's this fundamental trade of accountability for empowerment or sorry, accountability for autonomy. That's like what I what I think empowerment means is the teams get bounded autonomy to invent the solutions. Right. We're not going to be prescriptive about the tactical level solutions, but in exchange, they whatever they come up with, they are accountable that it drives the, the objectives that we need, which is everything we've been talking about here. And so my question is, you know, we've spent so much time as an industry harping on this and really hammering in this idea of like we shouldn't be prescriptive. And that's good at a certain point, but I feel like we might be getting on the edge of going too far with that as a, as a, as an industry. And so my question, you know, for my current take, that's all, all of that buildup is to say my current take is that the leadership level should be prescriptive in terms of strategy and they should not be prescriptive in terms of how to deliver on the strategy other than guardrails. What's your take there? And, and I guess my question would be if we're, if I'm a leader trying to set and like my OKRs for, you know, the next quarter. Where do I draw the line of prescriptiveness? That's a, a very difficult question. Trying to to see the context of all products out there, but essentially, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, your job as a leader is to make teams go in the right direction. So going back to these three 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 topics that we mentioned. So essentially, for example, let's let's take the the, the easy one is a strategy. For a strategy, we want to be a bit more top-down-ish because we have bigger strategic context and we know where to what the company needs to place its bets. If you go down one level to the roadmap, that's a bit more um, arguable because you will have, or not even have, you need input from the teams because you are breaking these things up. But at the end of the day, if you know this, uh, if, if we play with the, 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 the frame of delegation options from, from zero to seven, I think that's the, 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 the management 3.0 logic, for roadmaps, you want to be more probably more in the middle. But then for OKRs, you want to be more flexible because that at the end of the day is what going back to what we're saying is what teams will be accountable for. So they will they will be signing up for objectives that they will be responsible to take. And when when uh, when actually I think I think I have this this uh, phrase in the book literally is if you are afraid that you are not setting the teams OKRs and then the teams come back with OKRs that are completely different from what you are expected, you fail as a leader to give them proper strategic context. So that's the the, the, the way you can think about it. You want to bring more autonomy and you will be accountable, uh, if you want to say that, about giving them strategic context to make the right decisions. That makes total sense. One of the things that I, I love that you said that because one of the reasons I 
uh, harp on this so much with the leaders I work with is that one of the jobs of strategy is to enable high quality decisions in a highly autonomous way, right? If you want to give people autonomy, you, that you, you, what you need to do is build trust as a leader that like, if you're not around and you're not in the room or in the conversation, they're still going to make a decision you're pretty happy about. And that's kind of the job of strategy, right? It's to help. It's supposed to, at the end of the day, help exactly. people make good decisions that align with where we want this whole thing to go. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to what we said at the very, almost at the very beginning, if you are saying, Hey, this is a problem we need to solve. You shouldn't care that much about how they solve the problem as long as they solve the right. problem. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so is it, is it too prescriptive? If we took an example of like, um, you know, reduce 20% of information calls by increasing available data in the purchase flow. So I, I, the first part of that sentence, reduce 20% of information calls. That seems great. I wonder, is it, is it, I worry, is that too prescriptive? The second part about like by doing X is if we do that, are we being too prescriptive or is that okay? I think, again, it depends on the, the, the size of the organization, the scope of the team, but making it more concrete. If you are, um, looking at very different, I'm trying to stick to the example, but it's a very narrow example. So that, that example, if you want to, to make it a bit bigger, maybe complex. But if you're saying that, for example, all the problems you're having around information and then you, you have detected this is a problem. It's totally fine to be prescriptive in saying, Hey, this is the problem we want to solve now. And then this is in, in the example of the book. These are one quarter problem. So it's kind of this, it's going back to the OKRs. Um, mm-hmm. so this is the level in which you want to have this clarity on what you are trying to solve. But for example, if you're talking about the roadmap and you're being, seeing it a bit more longer term, probably your, your problem to solve will be more about, okay, we need to reduce incoming calls. So that's mm. the, the, the way to think. The closer you get to execution, in this case, it's one next quarter, you want to have this clarity on, okay, what, what are we betting on? Um, and besides the, it depends question. You want to have this level of alignment with the teams. And usually it's not that you as a leader are dictating these two teams. You are having conversations with the teams and, hey, which opportunities do we have? Which are the biggest one? Why would do we live in this one? Which evidence we have? So this selection usually is something that is, um, yeah, combined. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, as a leader, you are accountable for that decision. So if the, let's say that the team moved this needle and they achieved, they did great. If this is this problem solved, didn't hit the company impact expected, you as a leader are accountable for that. So that's the big difference in which you can and slash should be prescriptive because you are the one who will be accountable for m- making the leap from this thing that the, the, the team solves to the impact we have for the customer. Exactly. Exactly. So just to to make sure I'm understanding this right. So I think what you're saying, it sounds like the more short term we are setting a goal for, the more prescriptive we want to be. So if we're talking about like one quarter's OKRs, we would say some, we might say something like reduce 20% of calls by, by doing XYZ, like by increasing the data and the purchase flow. But then if we zoom up a level to a higher level roadmap, not an OKR, and let's say it's now we're talking over the next couple quarters or maybe the year, it would be, you know, automate the fulfillment of 99% of sales. You could see that being like a high level outcome for the year. And then if we zoom way out to the strategy itself, it might be reduce the cost per transaction. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yes. Uh, I would say two, two more things to that. The first one is, um, again, in the prescription. If you think about being prescriptive, probably for these short-term um, decisions, you are having much closer conversations with the team. So for maybe the study, I, I'm 
falling back to the strategy roadmaps of KR discussion, maybe the strategy you are a bit more, say, lonely making a decision. When you are done at the OKRs level, even though it doesn't matter if the leader is making a decision or not, because you should be having a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. So yes, you maybe as a leader, or you have to say that the veto power to say, hey, we, want, we really need to go in this direction because of such and such reason from the company. But usually these are kind of agreed upon things that you discuss with the teams because they need your strategic context and you need their kind of very tactical level uh, input. Mm, yeah. So that's one thing. And the other thing, sorry, I'm making this too long, but no, great. the other thing that's important is that you as a leader are accountable for the if the team achieved their impact or their, their outcomes, that those outcomes translate into the impact you're expecting for the company. And this is super critical because you are making that decision and you are accountable for the decision. So that's, that's um, I think, even, even more important when thinking about splitting accountability. Teams are accountable for finding a solution that solves the problem that the leader made or decided to work on. And the leader is accountable for the result of solving that problem in the overall strategy or the business impact. Mm, yeah, so it sounds like what you're saying is that what we get to hold a, a product team accountable for is like, hey, we assigned you this outcome, this OKR, and that was a you know that was a negotiation. We talked about this together, and you, you signed up for this, and so they're accountable for delivering on that outcome. Um, and what we, as the leader, are accountable for is the translation of the outcome we assigned them to do to the business level impact, right? So if we if we set them up to go solve this customer problem, and it turns out that customer problem does not matter at all for what the business needs, that's on us. <laughs> yes. That's a, that's, a, that's a big one. I mean. Yeah, no, I, I love that because it's it's good. I think it's one of the things I, I spend a lot of time talking with folks about, especially leaders, is the clarity that often the clarity of who is responsible for what is more important than the content of what they are responsible for. So like I often see a better, more, t- I, let me say that differently. I often see teams start to work better when they just get really explicit about, hey, you own this part. I own this part. This is what you're accountable for. This is what I'm accountable for. And even if that's not quite right and we change it, the fact that we've created this clarity, suddenly everything just starts working better. It's like, and we can update it next quarter. It's fine. All right. So I want to switch gears here and we're going to start to close out. And I'd love to ask you about, this is, this is what I like to call the hard calls segment. So I want to take a couple minutes, you know, maybe five minutes or so, maybe 10 minutes tops. And I just want to unpack, if you're willing, a, a hard decision you personally had to make as a product leader. And the, the goal here is to help the, the leaders who listen to this basically step into your shoes, right? And to sort of live and learn vicariously through your experience. Because one of my thoughts here is that really what we produce as product leaders, going back to that like outcome to impact thing, we produce decisions, right? And our decisions have impact. And so I want to give people a chance to step into your shoes and learn from your experience if you're, if you're willing. So I'm curious, do you have a hard call in mind? What's a, what's a hard decision you had to make as a product leader that we could unpack? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think about how we can make this without making another one hour yeah, yeah, yeah. podcast, but uh, maybe I should just change the podcast to just that, just, just hard product call. <laughs> the, the one I have in mind since we have been talking about uh, strategy and how the leader influences the strategy and decisions you need to make. One of the hardest calls is resource allocation. When you are deciding a strategy at a say, higher level, you need to make sure that the, what, how you are investing the, the team's efforts mapped to the things that you need to achieve. And, so I'm just making rambling here, but my, my hard call was essentially when I had to say, okay, one team that it was kind of previously growing and we were investing a large amount of our efforts in, we will put that on hold, reduce it to a minimum, put it in maintenance mode mm. and reallocate resources to 
other parts of the disease who require more attention. It was these situations in which some of part of a strategic pivot, I wouldn't call it a strategic pivot, but was kind of yeah, reallocating mm. to make more efforts on, on areas that we have stronger needs. Okay, so it sounds like the, the hard decision you had to end up making was essentially reallocating resources and people and and maybe even sunsetting a product. But you know, let's 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 walk it back for a second here. So what, what was the context? Like what 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 kind of what business was this? What was the situation? How did we get here? Uh, so I'm trying to make the, the story as short as possible. Okay. But essentially this was my time in Mexico, so company Best Day. We had several business units. So we have uh, B2C unit, it's a travel market, so it's like eReams or, or Expedia.com, that sort of mm-hmm. uh, e-commerce for travel. We have a B2B business unit selling uh, to, to others. Um, and we have a B2B2C business unit, which is mostly white labels mm-hmm. for other companies that want to have a travel site. And finally, a DMC, which is a destination management company, receiving passengers and, and get, getting them to activities in destination. Um, so the how we got there is that we are thinking about how to make the company grow more profitable, blah, blah, blah. So strategy works, let's put it away. Um, and at the moment, we were, say, investing similarly in all the, the areas we were working in. And that was quite inefficient because we have different res- different results in, in all of the areas of the business. And furthermore, we had um, businesses that were quite similar versus businesses that were quite different. So maybe going back, making this more explicit, B2B was quite different, but all of the others were serving passengers and they have some components in common that we were not leveraging. So the hard call was we had these B2B2C business units or white labels. And this is a business that is having a good return on investment. It's working well. We're investing kind of, uh, I think, two or three teams, something like that. And they are doing their job and they are improving the business year over year. So it's look, looking good. We have the B2C business, which is in much more trouble. The problem, the, the key problem there is that the strategic context for this B2B, B2C business unit is much harder. They have kind of Expedia, literally mm-hmm. one of the player of Booking.com, mm-hmm. one of the kind of big international players coming uh, and, at us. So even though it's not as profitable, if we don't do anything about it, it will eventually that business will not work anymore. Mm-hmm. So we, the, the, the hard call was about reducing resources from this B2B, B2B2C business unit investing more on the other and to make it a bit more complex it was an architectural decision in between because we were trying to make one platform that we can consume from the two business units because they were so similar got it so what made the decision what was the hardest part like what did this whole thing turn on yeah so basically we had so we have a team so we have for example like a product manager in there claiming for how good the resources were and not how good the, the things that they had to work on were. So they were essentially very profitable things. Uh, and we were saying, hey, we will work on this that is less profitable. So it was a, from the get-go was a, a bit of a complex thing to, to understand. And furthermore, we have uh, uh, someone managing the business units who was kind of my key stakeholder and was kind of at the same level as, mm-hmm. as I was. Mm-hmm. And I was basically pitching to them, hey, I will basically kind of stop all the work that I'm doing for you mm-hmm. uh, because we need to refocus on this one who belongs to someone completely different. So you would, I mean, completely misaligned to his objectives and there was no way to make that. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that sounds like a tough conversation. Really, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, of course, I mean, I did have the support of the CEO. It was not me making the decision by my own. I was presenting the strategy and the strategy said, hey, if we need to revamp this, uh, this uh, other business unit, 
without resource constraint because it's not that we can hire 20 more people to, to do it. The way we can do this is with this strategy. As I was saying before, the strategy had as an underneath saying, hey, we will be the platform that we can build a two business unit on top of it. So we have some some econ- yeah, economy of scale mm-hmm. sort of thing mm-hmm. going on. But for sure, uh, that was slows things down and will, yeah, you know, all the uncertainty and whatnot. Right. So, so that was that was a sort of architectural angle you're talking about of like, hey, to, to pull this off, we got to build this platform to support both. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to I want to actually pivot and ask you one more one more strategy question before we close out here. So one of the things that you know I've been finding that lately I've been talking to product leaders from a, a pretty wide range of companies scales. Right. I've been talking everybody from early stage founder CEO types to you know, large, mature company product leaders. One question that's been coming up is, is kind of at what point in a company's maturity or maybe a product maturity, do you actually need product strategy? So there, I, I've had pretty wide ranging debates with folks recently about like, do you even need strategy before product market fit? And I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah. Good one. Uh, yeah. So my, my, my take is that really what changes is the complexity of the strategy. Mm. So strategy will be good at different stages. Pre-market fit is a different beast. So they are kind of, I will say that doesn't make much sense to have strategy. You are trying to find what sort of what problem you need to solve. So kind of putting up front what problems you will solve in X time doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, but when you have, uh, and actually I, sorry, in my podcast, they have one episode interviewing someone in a very early stage startup. And basically saying, Hey, my, my strategy was, one line with three bullets of what we, the problems that we need to solve. And it was one very particular customer was a six month strategy. And so not two years of strategy. And that's it. Mm. And as you grow, the complexity of the strategy grows. And what the, the really big problem is kind of cascading and having everyone aligned, which is for probably what my book is about. When you have this problem of, Hey, we have five plus teams. That's where strategy really becomes super important and, and you get more complexity or you need more complexity to make it work. Mm. So, so really you need the more complexity when you start having about five teams, you said. Yeah, yeah, that's my, my kind of golden thing. Usually when you have uh, three teams, you are still kind of yeah, reporting to the CEO and then making many calls from in between this small round. Uh, when things start to scale, you need to communicate more, probably you have more stakeholders, but there are a lot of things that need to be aligned. And what, what size headcount overall does that usually happen? From what you've seen, that's a good question because it depends on the nature of the business. Sure. So you will have uh, software as a service that probably they can hit that scale at I don't know, fifty headcount, uh, but maybe that's too low. But hundred headcount. Yeah, 50 to 100. But if you have a, a yeah, if you have companies like um, that, they are call center intensive or a travel company, for example, a travel company has a lot of people who are dealing with the with the service providers. So it depends on the nature of the business. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Plus 100, but it can easily be 200 to reach that, that level if it's a different business. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this because one of the things I agree that strategy is it's usually discussed in most of the business world, which is, you know, not startups. Most of the business world is bigger companies that are already established. Um, you know, strategy is more complex because the organization is more complex and the number of people and all of that. But yeah, for early stage companies and, and especially pre-product market fit, I think strategy is a bit of a different beast. And so in that context, I, I basically think strategy is essentially, it's actually everything the company's doing at that point. At that scale, like you, you're, the whole company is just your product strategy because you're just trying to be, it's sort of the fundamental clarity about like, well, what are we doing here and why? And what does that even mean in terms of the customers and the problems? And so, um, that's kind of how I think it's strategy at that early stage. 
And I want to add one more thing yeah. that is that the, the problem space really changes. So when you are just kind of startup pre-market fit or in-market fit, kind of trying to survive, you are focusing on this problem and trying to really solve this problem. When you have the luxury, and especially let's say a bank, let's put a, one very extreme example, you can solve essentially many, many different problems. You are targeting many, many different uh, user groups. You are, so you have all this the opportunity space because becomes much bigger and requires much more learning. So it's not only about the, 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 because we, we take it from the angle of the, the company size and the complexity that the company size brings, which is quite true, but also the complexity of the opportunity space also requires a lot of strategic decisions that in a small startup you don't have. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because especially this is something I was chatting with a product leader at a, at a company that's just going into kind of hyper growth right now. And the thing I was trying to warn him about is like, hey, the, the strategy game is about to change significantly for you because you're about to go, in, go from like one very, very focused thing of product market fit and everything was about getting to that. And suddenly it's like you've reached a new plateau and now you have, instead of a target, you have a horizon of potential opportunities. And now you have a very different problem, which is like, I I, uh, now I have too many opportunities. Now what? I love the analogy. I mean, it's like, hey, when you're in a startup mode, you are climbing the mountain. You get to the top of the mountain and whoa, what the hell are you going from here? Yeah. Oh, wait, it's not a mountain. I just climbed up onto, onto a step or a plateau and now I have a whole new, <laughs> like, oh, what? <laughs> There's a whole horizon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you get out of the hole, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you pop out the other side and you're like, oh, wow, now we're not dead. So now what? <laughs> yeah, it's great. At what point do you, do you think companies need to go to, to really like having a, a proper, let's call it like product portfolio strategy? The, the problem I see is that the, to me, the, the portfolio strategy is kind of also what I call strategy. Yeah. But essentially when it's, I would say an answer that is maybe fairly logical, which is when you have more than one product. Right. So why I'm saying this is because to me, the, 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 the artifacts, the process are quite similar. What's more complex is that you, if you have two product lines that are serving two different customer segments or whatever, you probably need to find the synergies between those two. And that's the added layer of complexity that maybe a portfolio strategy brings into place. Yeah, that makes sense. That's where suddenly, you know, it makes sense that you might actually have a CPO and two VPs, for example, or to, you know, each one running a product. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, Nacho, this has been fantastic. I want to go ahead and close out here and just say, first off, what a pleasure it is to have you here. Um, and, and I'm so glad we're getting this time together. For, for the listener, um, as if you can't tell already, a huge fan of Nacho's work, both his book, Product Direction, and his podcast. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. Um, but Nacho, again, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. And just what would you like to leave the listener with? And where can they find you online? So the, the easiest way to find me is LinkedIn or my site, productdirection.co. Um, yeah, and I publish a lot of content there, so feel free to, to follow me. Um, and what I want to leave you with is, uh, yeah, maybe going back to reflecting what we said, strategy doesn't need to be this scary thing that you feel will take all your, of your life and effort for a long time. You can start in a lean way, visualizing what you have and building from there, and it will help you a lot. Love it. Awesome. Well, Nacho, again, thanks so much for being here and uh, real pleasure. Really love it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.